Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer. This gives everyone the opportunity to make sure you are spiritually prepared to study the word this evening and to focus. Make sure you're in fellowship. Uh, If we confess our sins, Scripture says, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, then at that instant that we do so, we're forgiven, we're cleansed of all unrighteousness, we are restored to fellowship, and we can then resume our forward momentum in our spiritual life. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have the privilege and opportunity to gather together in freedom, that we have a nation that has and recognizes freedom and has a heritage of freedom due to uh, our forefathers who settled here because of their uh, study of your word and that a true understanding of freedom uh, grounds itself in the freedom that was won first at the cross by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. And on the basis of that freedom, we can then come to understand Uh, other kinds of freedom, we can understand what true liberty is, and we can enjoy that. Father, we pray for us as believers that we might have a faithful witness in this, our nation, and that we might continue to take advantage of opportunities to tell others about the gospel and to explain the plan of salvation to them. Father, we pray for uh, your protection over this nation, that we might continue to uh, preserve our liberties and that you might uh, give uh, uh, power to those who would uh, seek to preserve our liberties and freedoms, and that you might restrict and uh, hinder those who would seek to limit them and take them away. And, Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that we might be strengthened and encouraged by what we learn. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Romans 8. In the last part of Romans 8, we really come to one of those great uh, crescendos in Scripture where the Apostle Paul just takes us to the very heights of some significant biblical truth. And the focus here is on the security of the believer in the love of God, that God's love for us, uh, which is consistent with his righteousness, is not conditioned upon anything that we do. And last time as we wrapped up our study of Romans 8.33, I talked about the, uh, and reminded us, reviewed us on the doctrine of justification by faith, pointing out that we're justified not by our own righteousness or anything that we have done, but we're justified by the righteousness of Christ, which we possess 
because when we trust in him, his righteousness is then imputed or credited to us, and God the Father looks at the righteousness that we now possess, which is Christ's righteousness, not ours, and declares us just. And so God's love is free to uh, embrace us fully because we possess the same righteousness that he possesses. And it's not on the basis of things that we've done or things that we haven't done because we're still sinners, yet un, yet above and surrounding the fact that we are sinner, sinners is this great doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And because we possess his righteousness, then Paul goes on to, to emphasize in verse 34 that there's no basis then for condemnation. Because we have the righteousness of Christ, we are therefore secure in God's love because God's love is compatible with our our perfect righteousness, which comes from Christ, and therefore there's really no basis for condemnation. As we've looked at this passage, I don't know what happened there. There we go. Mm-hmm. Hello. There we go. As we look at this passage, I pointed out, as we got into verses 31 down through 39, that there are these seven rhetorical questions. The force of these questions is to cause the reader or the listener to to follow a certain logic chain, a logical chain of thought from his uh, opening question, what shall we say to these things, causing us to think about the application and implication of what he has said, not only in the previous three chapters related to sanctification, but also to the previous eight chapters in the book as he's bringing this opening section uh, to uh, to an end. Starting in verse, or excuse me, starting in chapter nine, which I hope to begin uh, in the next lesson. Starting in chapter 9, we see a re, uh, return to the theme of righteousness in terms of how is God's, uh, if God is righteous, how does this then relate to his plan for, uh, his plan for Israel? But in these seven questions, we've gone through the first, uh, four. Uh, what, sh- what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Obviously no one. Uh, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And the implication of the question is that because he gave us everything in Christ, he will continue to supply everything for us, no matter what uh, suffering or adversity uh, we might face. Then ver- uh, the fourth question, what we covered in verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Uh, since God is the one who justifies, there's no one then who can bring a charge against God's elect. And then now the fifth question, who is he who condemns? In the sixth and seventh question, they're tied together, uh, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer to that is, might, people may say, well, maybe there are circumstances or situations. And then in his, his answer is another question, uh, the seventh question, shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, shall any, any circumstance uh, separate us? And this drives him to the greatest statement here of security, which comes in uh, verses we all know very well, in verses 38 and 39, that Paul says that he is confident that nothing, and he goes through a series of um, 
of things that are opposites to to show that there are there's nothing within God's creation that can separate us from the love of Christ. So the question of verse six, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, is answered in verse by verse thirty nine, the last part, that nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's look at verse thirty four. The question, who is it that condemns, is to drive us to think about who is the one who is the ultimate judge. Before whom will we stand? Now, as believers, we know that we will stand before the what is referred to as the Bema seat. Bema is a Greek word meaning a high-raised platform. This was the seat upon which uh, judges in athletic contests would sit, uh, there were also raised uh, seats where the proconsul would sit and 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 they would bring before him various uh, cases to be tried, and so this was the seat of the judge. So it's the bema seat refers to the uh, judgment seat of Christ. Christ will judge the church, evaluate us in terms of our spiritual growth and in terms of our spiritual production. And this is described in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 14 to 18, and talking about the fact that some of our works, that which is done in the flesh, is wood, hay, and straw. That which is done uh, as we walk by the Spirit is gold, silver, and precious stones. All that survives for evaluation purposes is that which is done uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is referred to as gold, silver, and precious stones. But Jesus Christ is our judge, the one who evaluates us as the bride of Christ, as the, as the church, he evaluates us. And then the next <clears throat> judgments that come, there are several other judgments that occur at the time that Jesus Christ returns to the earth. There's the sheep and the goat judgment, there's the judgment of the Antichrist, the judgment of the false prophet, the uh, judgment of Satan where he's cast into uh, the uh, bottomless pit in chains for a million years. And then there is a subsequent judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom when there's the, uh, beam, um, excuse me, the great white throne judgment. And again, the judge at that time is Jesus Christ. We know this because of what Jesus taught in John chapter 5. Two key verses, John 5.22, John 5.27, and then later we'll look at John 17:31 and this shows that Jesus Christ himself is the one who has been delegated the authority to judge all things at the end of time so at the end of the tribulation um, and during the tribulation the judgment seat of Christ the judgments that occur at the end of the tribulation and the great white throne judgment are all conducted by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 5:22, for the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now the reason the Father commits the judgment to the Son is because the Son is like us. And he has when Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, entered into human history and became a human being, he lived his life under the same conditions that we do, with one exception. He was not born with a sin nature. He did not receive the imputation of Adam's original sin, and he committed no personal sin. That was his test. 
whether or not he would live his life in his humanity uh, in obedience to God through dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. And that, uh, and he passed that test in contrast to the first Adam who failed at that test. Adam failed the test in the Garden of Eden. And so Jesus Christ is, is uh, born in the same condition as Adam initially was without sin. And yet Jesus Christ passes the tests that Adam, Adam failed. And so because he passed those tests, he is, uh, and then he's eventually crucified uh, and he buried and then he is resurrected and he's elevated to the position of the right hand of God the Father. And then from there he comes, as we'll see in a second, to judge the living and the dead. He is the one who has that judgment. And so we are judged by a peer. We're judged by one of our own, the hu- we meaning all human beings, judgment seat of Christ, uh, later judgments are all uh, conducted by uh, Jesus Christ, who is a, a human being who has gone through all of the tests, all of the issues that every human being goes through. And so no one is going to stand before him and say, well, we just couldn't do it. It just wasn't, wasn't possible. And Jesus is going to be the one who says, well, that he did it. And he not only did it in his humanity, but he did it uh, for us in other aspects, not in a redemptive as not he, not living his life in a redemptive aspect, but uh, in order to demonstrate that it that it could be done. So that judgment is committed to the Son, uh, in, because he is our our peer. So the Father commits all judgment to the Son. We will be judged. All human beings will be judged by a, our peer. Uh, John 5.27 states the same point, that God the Father has given him, Jesus Christ, authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. And in that verse, we have the title for Jesus that relates to his humanity. He's the Son of Man. In um, Hebrew idiom, if you are a murderer, you would be called a son of a murderer in that you uh, portray the attributes of a murderer. You are the son of that attribute. If you're a fool, you would be called the son of a fool. If you are a human being, you're the son of man. If you're God, you're the son of God. So that phrase doesn't emphasize uh, derivation or procreation as much as it I- indicates that you participate in all of the attributes of that particular uh, noun that is the object of the uh, of the preposition. So son of man emphasizes his humanity. Now in Acts 17.31, which we'll cover soon in Acts, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he ordained. Again, the emphasis is on the fact that it is the humanity of Christ that is significant in relation to the judgment that he brings, uh, not only at the judgment seat of Christ, but in all subsequent judgments. And that, And then Paul says, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So part of the resurrection is to show God that God the Father validated Jesus in all that he did, but that he is also promoting him and elevating him to that position to be at his right hand uh, and to be qualified for the next stage in God's plan, which is to be 
to be a judge. Now, it's interesting that in the early church, in the early church, they wrote several creeds. A creed was a distillation of their their basic belief system, summarizing it in uh, in a rather short form. And one of the earliest creeds that we have, written in 325 B.C. at the Council of Nicaea, uh, f- really focused on the issue of the deity of Christ. And so a major part of that creed in the middle, which is still recited by many churches and many congregations, uh, is a focus upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read that he, uh, uh, the previous section, I didn't put the whole creed in here, but the previous section talks about the incarnation, that for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Notice how in those creeds, as they distilled the significance of the post-crucifixion work of Christ, it focuses on his resurrection, ascension, his session, that's the word meaning to be seated, his session, and his return to judge. Those four things are emphasized in all of those early creeds about Jesus, his resurrection, his ascension, his session, and his coming to judge uh, the living and the dead. Another early creed from that same time period, uh, this from uh, later on in that century, 4th century A.D., uh, is the Athanasian Creed, which is named for Athanasius, who was the great uh, bishop of Alexandria, who stood his ground against those who sought to uh, minimize the humanity of Christ uh, and that whole battle that took place, it seemed like the victory was won at, the, at Nicaea, but it actually continued for another 30 years, and uh, there were times of defeat and victory for Athanasius. He was exiled, I think, three or four times before there was a final conclusion to the debate over the understanding what the Scriptures taught upon the deity of Christ, that he was fully God and fully man. And so in the Athanasian Creed we read, For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. That's the hypostatic union. Hypostasis is the Greek word meaning a person, the joining in one person of both humanity and deity. So God and man is one Christ, that unity of hypostasis known as the hypostatic union in theology. Uh, who suffered for our salvation, descended into Hades, actually, rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. Uh, Quick is just old English translation for the living. And so we see this same emphasis on these same four uh, important doctrines, the resurrection, ascension, session, and then coming to judge uh, the quick and the dead. So Christ uh, ascended, 
to heaven. He's validated by God the Father, and he sits not on his own throne, but as Revelation 3.21 emphasizes, he sits on the Father's throne. He is sitting, as Psalm 110.1 says, at the right hand of the Father to await the giving of his kingdom based on Daniel chapter 7. When the Ancient of Days, God the Father, gives the kingdom to the Son, the Son of Man in Daniel 7, then the Son of Man will return to the earth. This is the second coming at the end of the tribulation period, and this is when he comes to judge the nations of the world in their rebellion uh, at that great final battle of the tribulation, the battle uh, campaign, rather, of Armageddon. So at um, at that point he comes... But in the meantime, he is at the right hand of the Father, which is a position of exaltation. This is emphasized in a number of New Testament passages. I'm only going to show you five of them and just briefly touch on them just to show the importance of the um, of this doctrine in the New Testament. In Acts 2.33, in Peter's uh, day of Pentecost message, he said, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God... And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see. So the uh, giving of the Holy Spirit is directly related to Christ's ascension and session. This is the first thing that happens uh, after the session is that he uh, pours out the Holy Spirit upon the church. And then in Ephesians, um, excuse me, Back up the slide. Acts 5.31, him, the, referring to Jesus Christ, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Notice how the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of the Father is connected to his future, uh, to his work as savior, but to his work of uh, granting repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So that's how it's uh, expressed there, uh, indicating God's plan for Israel in the future. That's going to be a major theme once we get into Romans chapter 9. Then Ephesians 1.20, uh, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, resurrection, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Uh, and the writer of Hebrews stated, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying, that we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. This emphasizes the fact that the, that the focal point right now is on Christ's high priestly ministry over the church, not his kingship right now. You'll often find in a lot of especially contemporary choruses and hymns uh, an emphasis on addressing Christ today as king. Uh, this is not biblically correct. Christ is not viewed now as the king but as high priest. His kingship comes when God the Father delegates that to him uh, right before the second coming, and then he comes to assume that position. He's not identified as the king of kings and lord of lords until he's ready to come with his kingdom in Revelation chapter 19 at the time of the battle of uh, of Armageddon. So right now he's in that position of being seated at the right hand of the Father in a high priestly role. 
That's also emphasized in 1 Peter 3.22 that he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Now it's interesting because when we get into Romans 8.38 and 39, Paul will say that I'm persuaded that among all these things that can't separate us from the love of Christ are angels, principalities, and powers. Why? They're under the authority of the resurrected uh, Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in a high priestly ministry which focuses on his role as uh, uh, as the one who prays for us as our intercessor. Now this is an extremely important doctrine. We've already seen in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit is the one who uh, intercedes for us uh, back in verses uh, 23 uh, 24, 25, 26, uh, the Holy Spirit, verse 26, helps us in our weaknesses, for we don't know how we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us. So the Holy Spirit is the one who prays on our behalf, and he helps our prayers because no matter how bright you may think you are, no matter how theologically astute you might be, uh, what the scripture says is we really don't know how we ought to pray. That doesn't mean you shouldn't pray. It means that you and I just don't have omniscience. We don't really understand all the facts. So God the Holy Spirit helps us. So he's sort of our uh, divine uh, simultaneous translator uh, to straighten out our prayers on their way to the throne of grace. We don't pray to the Holy Spirit. Every now and then I hear people who pray to the Holy Spirit, but you don't pray to the one who intercedes for you. You're praying to the one they are praying to. The same is true with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our intercessor. You don't pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he is. He prays to the Father for us. We don't pray to him. We pray to the Father. A lot of people aren't clear on this concept. Some people have thought, in fact, I had a discussion with one pastor some years ago, and he was under the impression that the only reason that people said that you only prayed to the Father was because in every example Jesus gave a prayer, he prayed to the Father. Well, Jesus wouldn't pray to himself, so that's, that argument doesn't, doesn't uh, follow, and that's, that's true. But the, the point that he missed is that that's not the, the traditional uh, strong argument here. The argument is you don't pray to the intercessor. You pray to the Father, and the intercessor is the one who is praying along with you on your behalf. And so uh, you don't, uh, uh, just like if you're talking to someone through a translator, you don't talk to the translator. You talk to the person you're talking to, and the translator is the one who is uh, translating what it is that you are saying. Two key verses on the intercession of Christ, Hebrews 7.25, emphasizes his intercessory advocacy. Uh, Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost, that is, to bring to completion our salvation, those who come to God through him, since he he always lives to make intercession for them. So he is continually interceding for us. This is another tremendous verse on eternal security, that he is able, he is the one who brings our salvation to completion, and he is the one who stands uh, as our advocate 
with the Father. This is brought out even more in 1 John 2.1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. So right there he's showing that one of the purposes for learning doctrine and for studying the Word is so that we don't sin. It's not so that we can uh, uh, sin and then utilize grace to get out of it but uh, or to be forgiven, but we are to study so that we do not sin. And if we do, because we will, not because we're permissive, but because we recognize that we all still have sin natures, uh, if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He stands as a, uh, a defense attorney advocating for us with the Father because uh, when we are, if Satan attempts to condemn us for our sin, then Jesus Christ, as it were, points to the fact that we have received the perfect right, his perfect righteousness and that uh, because of that, our sin is no longer an issue. So he intercedes for us. So in that sense, as we look at Romans uh, 8.34, who is it that condemns? Uh, no one, because the judge is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ is our peer. He is our intercessor. He is our advocate. And so none can bring a charge that would stick because he has paid for our sin. Then we come to the next verse, verse 35. Asking the next question, the sixth rhetorical question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And this is followed up by a second rhetorical question, which is the seventh in our list, which focuses our attention a little more on what possible answers there might be of things that could separate us from God. And the question is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? As you can tell, I'm still struggling with this congestion garbage. Okay. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The word here for separate looks in translation like it's a Spanish sausage. It is not chorizo. Okay, that CH at the beginning is the same transliteration, of that same letter key, which is the first letter in Christos. So it's pronounced chorizo, not chorizo. Okay? Now, I always remembered that, try to have little memory things to memorize a Greek vocabulary. This is a word only used 11 times in the New Testament. And so I thought of sausage, and when you make sausage, first you have to divide up all the different whatever that you put into the sausage before you blend it. So that's how I would always remember the meaning of this word, is it means to divide or to separate. And so that's the idea here, who will uh, separate us. It's a future tense verb. And so Paul is saying, who in the future, what, what possible thing could happen in the future that could ever separate us or divide us from the love of Christ? This phrase, love of Christ, in the, uh, in the Greek, it's, a, it's an accurate translation uh, the verb is agape, but it, it could be taken as love from Christ or love toward Christ. 
and it should be understood as love from Christ, which is an objective genitive. Uh, it is God, Christ's love for us, just as we'll see in verse 39. It is the love of God. There is God's love for us. The question is, is there anything that can conceivably separate us from God once we are saved? Is there any way in which we could lose our salvation? Is there anything that we could possibly do that would cause God's love to kick us out of the family. And so Paul does everything he can in verses 35 and then again in verse 38 to talk about the fact that that nothing can possibly do this. Now, I just wanted you to think a little bit about this this construction of these two verses uh, separated by uh, verses 36 and 37. He says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then he lists seven things. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. All of those are things that can happen to us in this life up to the point of death. Now, when we get to verse, verses 38 and 39, he's going to add ten more things. But these are things that are beyond the physical realm and would be beyond the material realm. Uh, death and life, notice they're, 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 they're pairs except for one, which is a, uh, three elements. They're death and life. This is known as a figure of speech um, called a merism. A merism is when, uh, for example, the scriptures say God created the heavens and the earth. Is there anything that is not included with those two extremes? The heavens represents the extreme of the uh, skies, and the earth is the finite globe on which we live. Uh, day and night, we are to meditate on God's word day and night. Is there any time frame left out of that? You know, by using the two opposites, it brings together the, the, the totality of what lies between those two opposites. And so we have these pairs. In one case, I see the second case, it's three things that indicate a totality of, of environments. I am persuaded that neither death nor life. Now, <clears throat> there's nothing else you can make. Death and life are the two opposites, so that includes any and all possibilities. Angels, uh, that refers to the uh, elect angels, the holy angels. Principalities and powers refers to the hierarchies of the demonic powers. Things present or things to come, that includes... Anything now, anything that could come up in the future, that, again, covers a totality of things. Height or depth, uh, two opposites, including everything in between, or any other, just to, in case something was left out, he says, or any other created thing. So he's saying that in, in these two lists, anything that could conceivably happen in this life up to the point of death, and anything beyond death, we've covered every possible contingency. There's nothing at all that can separate us from the love of Christ. And that is because God's love for us in Christ is not based on who we are. It's not based on what we've done. Because we're still sinners after we're saved. We still commit sin. We can still commit sins as, as evil and wicked as any sin we committed before we were saved. And if you're like me and you were very young when you were saved, then you really didn't have the opportunity ex to exploit your... Uh, your sin nature a whole lot before you were saved. That came later, trust me. 
we all exploit our sin natures, and we become quite good and crafty at that, uh, even after we're saved. So, But we're saved not because of who we are or what we've done, but because uh, we have Christ's righteousness. That's our legal possession. And so God's love for us is based upon our possession of the righteousness of Christ. Now, that wasn't ever based on anything that we can do. So if we didn't do anything to gain it, we can't do anything to lose it. On the flip side, think about this. If you can do something to lose it, trust me, somewhere in the web of a person's theology who believes that you can do something to lose your salvation, they're hiding works somewhere. Because if you can do something to lose your salvation, somehow you're doing something to get it. And that always seems to go together. So let's look at this list of things that come out of our day-to-day life experiences that Paul lists here as potential things that could separate us from the love of Christ. The first two are tribulation and distress. This is how they are translated. They are These words often are used together as synonyms describing the totality of the facing the challenges, the difficulties, the heartaches of life, all that we think of in terms of adversity, both in terms of the external circumstances that are adverse and hostile to us, as well as our inner reactions uh, to those things. The first word that's listed is the word thlipsis. Uh, Thlipsis is a word that refers to uh, trouble that brings about uh, distress uh, oppression, affliction, or tribulation. These are the ways in which the word is, is translated. It is uh, sometimes used to uh, talk about the persecution and the distress that occurs during that period we refer to as the tribulation, even though that's not the best term to describe it. That is a term that has become the popular uh, term for describing the seven-year period known in the Old Testament as the time of uh, Jacob's wrath, the time of, uh, of, the, of the 70th week of Daniel in the vision Daniel had of the uh, time that God was giving to, to Israel. So Thlipsis just simply refers in a general sense to any sort of distressing circumstances, uh, emphasizing both external uh, the, the horrors of the external circumstances and situation as well as the internal anxiety and fear or distress that it brings about. Whereas the second word, uh, stenochorea, emphasizes a set of stressful circumstances as well and is usually translated as distress or difficulty, anguish, trouble, or affliction. So you see the, the words overlap one another, and by using both of them together, it pretty much covers the spectrum of any kind of negative uh, difficulty. In Second Corinthians 6, verse 4, Paul writes, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses. So here we have both words used. Uh, tribulations is the word thlipsis, and distresses is the word stenochorea. Numerous times, as I said, these are used together. Then the next word that is used, the third word that is used, is diogmas, 
which indicates uh, external persecution or opposition for our faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.4, Paul says, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience, that's endurance, your hupomenes, your endurance, your stick to in the Christian life, and faith in all your persecutions, diogmos, and tribulations, that's thlipsis, that you endure. Notice how many other passages you get this same collection of words that we have here. Then the next two words, uh, limos, indicates hunger uh, or famine. In this case, it would be just going without, not having enough for food. And many times as Paul traveled from city to city, they might uh, might take them longer. They may get trapped by inclement weather, not have enough supplies with them, and so they would go without the word uh, gumnotes, uh, translated naked, in, in modern language, we think of that as being somebody who, who's just stripped of all their clothes. That's not really the main idea of this word at this time in history. It more, more often meant just being without adequate uh, clothing. And so it was used uh, metaphorically for, I left a T out of that word, for destitution. Uh, to not have enough supplies with him, so he was he was left uh, without quite enough food, going hungry at times, and at other times he didn't have enough uh, clothes on his back. He might get caught out in weather uh, where it was colder, didn't have enough clothes, didn't have enough with him. He had maybe in some of these times when shipwrecks and other, he lost what he had, and so that's the emphasis there, the loss of the details of life. Then we have uh, kendinos, uh, meaning physical hazards, dangers, risks, and makaira, sword. Sword is often used metaphorically or figuratively for what it's used for, which is to bring about death. So when he talks about um, peril or sword, it's in peril of his life and risk of his life where his life, uh, life was threatened. Now, a passage that describes... Uh, many of these kinds of circumstances in Paul is a, a passage that you should be familiar with, and I want us to read through in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You can just listen to me as I read it, or if you wish, you can turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. And as I read through this, I want you to think about just the, the ministry as a whole for pastors, for missionaries, for the apostles, uh, what is involved in serving the Lord. And it's not limited to apostles or pastors or teachers or missionaries. This is something that we are all called to do because that's the point of the passage in Romans 8, is we are called to serve the Lord no matter what it might cost us. So Paul rehearses some of the adversities he uh, faced in Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter eleven, and in verse uh, twenty-three, he he's he's asking these rhetorical questions because he's been coming under attack from people who were his critics in in Corinth, and um, they've been criticizing him for any number of things, and so he says, uh, "Are they ministers of Christ?" says, I speak as a fool. I am more of a minister of Christ than they are, is his point. He says, in labors more abundant, indicating that the ministry involves labor, 
It's sad to say that there are too many who use it as an excuse for laziness, but there are those who do that. Uh, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure. And what he means by, by stripes is, comes up, uh, in the next verse is that this refers to being flogged, uh, being flagellated, uh, as a punishment. In stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently. Now, we only know of a few times that Paul was put in jail or in prison, but according to this, there were many more circumstances where he was uh, under attack by local uh, populations and was thrown in jail for a night or more. In deaths more often, and by that he means in danger of being executed or losing his life more often. He then says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Five different times. We don't know of, of any of those. They're not recorded in the book of Acts, uh, except for maybe the one in um, uh, Laodicea. Uh, five times, and, and so they would uh, whip with uh, uh, only 39 times because the, uh, the Mishnah prohibited, said that you couldn't whip more than 40 times. And so they always subtracted one just in case they miscounted. So five times he was flagellated, uh, 40 stripes minus one, 39 times. Verse 25, he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Uh, he was, in, in the South, we used to call that a caning. That happened one time on the floor of Congress. Congress used to be much more physically violent than it is today there bunch of weenies up there now, they just yell words at each other. But back in the what some might call the good old days of the early 19th century, there were occasions when one congressman would get so angry with another that he would take his cane and beat the other one. So we just think things are violent today. Beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Only one shipwreck is recorded in the book of Acts. In journeys, often, he was always on the road. I, I, would be, I wonder if anybody's ever added up how many miles the Apostle Paul walked. Uh, in journeys, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among frost brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often. And that's not necessarily fasting for prayer. That would be going in the context. That would be going without food. In cold and nakedness, in other words, not having the right clothing appropriate to the weather, Verse 28, he says, Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Now, there's another passage in 1 Corinthians where he has a similar list of things. In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 9 through 13, he said, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. See, our witness is not only to other human beings, but also before the angels. He went on in verse 10, For we are fools for Christ's sake, 
but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. He's being sarcastic here because the Corinthians thought they knew so much. In verse 11, he says, To the present hour we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled we bless, being persecuted we endure, being defamed we entreat, we have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. So you see there are many negative circumstances that can occur, not that they will, but that they can occur in the Christian life. In fact, in First uh, Timothy chapter 4, Paul told Timothy that those uh, who desire to be godly will endure suffering. And so this is something that that is part of the Christian life. And as we read in uh, Romans 8, uh, 17, if we are going to advance and mature in the Christian life, and if we are going to uh, be rewarded as joint heirs with Christ, then we will go through suffering in this life as we seek to obey the Lord and live out the Christian life. And so this is the picture uh, that we have is described in in Romans 8.35. But his point is that none of these things that we face mean that we're separated from the love of Christ. How often when people go through hard times, when they lose loved ones and near ones and dear ones due to death, when those around them fail them, disappoint them, uh, become hostile to them, betray them, that they think that God has somehow betrayed them because life has become so difficult. But the reality is none of these things indicate that we are separated from the love of Christ. In fact, they may very well demonstrate that that it is God's love that is uh, maintaining us and keeping us and providing for us in the midst of all that difficulty, just as God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness as they were under divine discipline. Now, all of this can be a form of discipline. It can be uh, negative as punishment, but it can also be positive as God is using these negative circumstances to build Christ-like character in our lives. Then we come to uh, Romans 8.36. As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long, We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. This is from Psalm 42, uh, 23. Psalm 42, 23. Psalm 42 is a psalm dealing with uh, an event. We're not sure which one it is. uh, An event in the life of Israel. It's a time when they are facing uh, military disaster, a time when the people's security is threatened, and they are crying out, in lament to God in confusion uh, because they it, it seems as if God has uh, has deserted them and and they are uh, forgotten by him and just a couple of things I want to point out um, the things that they mention in this in this uh, psalm it begins in verse one we have heard with our ears O God our fathers have told us so this is going back to uh, the time of the exodus the deeds you did in their days, in the days of old. You drove out the nations with their hands. This is the time of the conquest. But them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, that's the nations, and cast them out, that's removing the Canaanites from the land. 
For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own army save them. Uh, but it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance because you favored them. In other words, they're reminding God that he gave them the land. It wasn't uh, something they earned by their own military might or strength, but because God gave them the victory. Then in verses uh, 4 and following, they restate their confidence in God. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you, we will push down our enemies. Through your name, we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. In other words, we're not, uh, it's not against technology. It's not against military training, but it is not, it's pointing out that that's not the solution. Ultimately, it's God and trusting in Him. Uh, goes on to say, but you've saved us from our enemies. You put to shame those who hated us. In God, we boast all day long. But now the problem is stated in verse 9. But you have cast us off and put us to shame, and you do not go out with our armies. So this is a time of military defeat. You make us turn back from the enemy, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You've given us up like sheep intended for food. You've scattered us among the nations. So this very likely could be uh, referring to a time after uh, the Babylonian captivity. There's a lot of debate uh, among scholars as to when this was written. We don't know because there's no uh, indication in the text. Uh, so they become, verse 13, a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to all those around. They're in that they're going through suffering, tribulation, adversity, persecution, all of these things. That's the context uh, for this uh, quote from verse 23. Uh, which reads in the psalm, Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our, our body clings to the ground, arise for our help. Excuse me, it's, it's actually verse 22, verse 23 there I put up there. That's That's what it is in the Hebrew. That's verse 22 in the English. Yet for your sake we're killed all day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's uh, Psalm 45:22. The point is that they are making is that as we serve God, even our own lives become a sacrifice and an offering for the plan of God. This reminds me of three verses that we find in the New Testament related to our lives being a sacrifice. Uh, another verse that comes to mind is Romans 12:2 or 12:1. Rather, uh, Philippians 2.17, yes, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, Paul recognized his life that he was in prison at the time uh, was a sacrifice to God. It's poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. 2 Timothy 4.6, this is near the end now, the next uh, imprisonment of Paul in Rome. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. And then one of my favorite verses in times of difficulty is Job's statement in Job thirteen fifteen: though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That no matter how bad things appear, nevertheless, I'm still going to trust in God. Now, in verse 37, Paul moves on and he says, yet in all these things. Now, what are the these things that we're talking about, the all things in this chapter? 
It's suffering, the suffering that we in, that we endure uh, for Christ, that which suffering with Him. For in all these things, that is, in all suffering and adversity, we are more than conquerors. This is not just the word, the verb, uh, or the noun Nike from uh, where the uh, athletic shoe gets its uh, brand name, Nike. It's not just Nike, meaning conqueror, overcomer, victor. It's Hooper, Nike, the one who is the superior overcomer, the uh, uber conqueror. And all these things, we are uber conquerors through him who loved us. See, if we face adversity on the basis of God's provision for us, then no matter what happens, even if our life is lost in the process, God is glorified, and this brings honor to him, and this is part of his plan. And then Paul concludes by saying, For I am persuaded, uh, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things to come, nor things present nor things to come, uh, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, the verb that is used at the beginning is patho, meaning I am persuaded, I have come to a conclusion on the basis of evaluating all of the facts. I am convinced of something as being absolutely true. And coming from the Apostle Paul, this isn't just him expressing a human opinion, but under the inspiration of God, he is expressing the divine viewpoint here that all of the information, all of the evidence that we have is such that we can have no other conclusion other than this one, that nothing in God's creation can possibly separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For if we trust in him, then Christ's righteousness is ours. God loves us because of that righteousness, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ did. And on that basis, we're saved. So circumstances, whether in this life or beyond this life, no circumstance, no situation can threaten our security in Christ. And I've already pointed out that these are set in groups of uh, opposites known as uh, a merism to indicate the totality of the circumstances so that nothing can possibly separate us. It's the same word here, uh, carizo, uh, that is used back in verse 34, or 35 rather, that who, where it said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Here's the answer. Nothing shall be able to, in the future, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love from God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that emphasizes that it's not the love from God, which is in you. It's not focused on you. It's not focused on me. It's focused on the fact that we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ and we have Christ's righteousness, we can't be separated from the love of God. But there might be an objection. There might be some in, who, in Rome who were Jewish background believers who might say, well, that is fine and well, but it looks like the Jewish people have suffered a lot of persecution and suffering and distress 
and they are under the heel of Rome, and it looks like God has forgotten them. So if God has forgotten them, how can we be sure God won't forget us? And that's the question that Paul answers starting in the next chapter where he's going to demonstrate that God's love for Israel has not faltered either, even though they are now going through distress and adversity and uh, tribulation, but that God's love will eventually bring them to salvation as well. And so next time we'll come back and start with chapter 9. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things this evening, to be reminded of your faithfulness toward us, and that there is nothing that we can do, no failure, no sin, no act whatsoever, that can ever cause us to be separated from your love, because your love was never based on who we are or what we've done. It's always been based on the righteousness of Christ, which we possess because it was imputed to us when we trusted in Jesus as our Savior. And we pray that we might always understand this and you might give us great comfort as God the Holy Spirit assures us of the certainty of our salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.